This is lecture number six on Deuteronomy by Robert Benoit of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number six. We're under Roman numeral two, capital D, which is the origin of the covenant in the Old Testament and its historical implications, the present state of affairs in Deuteronomy. We began discussion of that in the last class hour with number one, Zitzenleben, of the covenant form, historical implications of its presence. But the essence of that, number one, is the nature of the covenant form and its origin that is to be considered as cultic or historical as far as the origin of the form is concerned. That has come to be a rather debated matter in the present discussion around Deuteronomy in connection with the covenant form. Where does the form come from? What are the implications of the nature of the form on the origin of the form? What implications, then, does it have for the date of Deuteronomy? So that's where we are in our discussion of the nature of the form and its origin. Is it cultic or is it historical? As we already noticed in our discussion, Gerhard von Rad in 1938 proposed the derivation of the form from the cult. At that point, he knew nothing of the Hittite treaties. He knew nothing of the treaty form, but when he came to the book of Deuteronomy, he saw a certain structure in the book of Deuteronomy. We have discussed that earlier. It's contained in his work, Problem with the Hexateuch. He says that structure of Deuteronomy is derived from the cult and some periodic cultic celebration that followed that pattern. That cultic pattern then has become reflected in the book of Deuteronomy itself. With more recent discussion of the Hittite treaty material, he's not changed his position. He continues to say there was a structure discernible and that it's cultic. In 1954, Mendenhall started with the treaty material, and in the last 15 to 20 years, that discussion has increased tremendously. Von Rad, of course, is aware of the discussion. He recognizes the very close parallel between the Hittite treaty form and the form that he originally found in the book of Deuteronomy. I'll refer you to two places where he discusses that. The first is his Old Testament Theology, Volume 1. His Old Testament Theology was published in 1962. So this is rather early in the treaty covenant discussion, but he says on page 132 of that work, Quote, comparison of ancient and Near Eastern treaties, especially those made by the Hittites in the 14th and 13th centuries B.C., with passages in the Old Testament, has revealed so many things in common between the two, particularly in the matter of form, that there must be some connection between the suzerainty treaties and the exposition of the details of Yahweh's covenant with Israel given in certain passages in the Old Testament. End quote. There must be some connection. There's too much of a parallel there for that just to be accidental. And he says, as he goes on, as a result, with particular passages and groups of passages, we may speak of, this is what he calls a covenantal formulation, in which the various formal elements found in the treaties reoccur feature for feature, though sometimes freely adapted to suit the conditions that obtained in Israel. And I end the quotation from von Rad. Then he discusses that schema. We've already seen that outline of the treaties, the outline of the covenant form. 
He mentions a number of places this is to be found in the Old Testament. He says, and I quote him again, Even if there are many questions of detail that could be answered, there is at least no doubt that the two kinds of material are related one to another. The relationship in respect of form can be traced down to the text of post-conquest times. Here, of course, Israel took over. But then, when we remember the age of some of the relevant Old Testament material, we have to reckon that she became acquainted with this treaty schema very early on, perhaps as soon as the time of the judges. End quote. So, there is a connection, he says. It looks like Israel was acquainted with this early treaty form in her history, which to him means the time of the judges. He's not getting back to the Mosaic era, but back at least as far as the time of the judges. That's about the extent of his comment on the form in his book on Old Testament theology. More recently, he's come out with a commentary on Deuteronomy that I've already mentioned. This appeared in German in 1964 and was translated into English in 1966. He discusses this at more length there, but I don't want to get into all the details of it. But on page 21 he says, and I quote Fonrad again, Finally, we must mention one type of composition used in Deuteronomy, which scholars have only recently recognized, namely the formulary used for covenants. The discussion of this has only just begun. It has been known for some time that potentates of the ancient Near East, especially the Hittites, used to draw up their treaties with their vassals according to a definite pattern. But it was astonishing to realize that this treaty pattern can be traced in not a few parts of the Old Testament and, amongst others, in Deuteronomy. End quote. So, Fonrad sees that pattern there very clearly in Deuteronomy, and then he lists the pattern and all the elements in it. But then he says, and I quote him again, At the time of Deuteronomy, this pattern had long been used freely for literary and homiletic purposes. End quote. He also discusses that a bit, and then he goes on and says, quote, The question is still quite open how and when Israel came to understand its relationship to God in the form of these early Near Eastern treaties with vassals. End quote. So, Fonrad leaves open the question of the origin of form and when Israel adopted the form. Over on page 23, Fonrad says, quote, If we now ask what Zitzimleben demanded the pattern in accordance with which Deuteronomy is arranged, it could have been taken only from cultic celebration, perhaps from a piece of renewal of the covenant. Thus the classic pattern of the regular covenant formulary appears in Deuteronomy, in any case only in a mutilated form, where its setting is the cult in which the form of Deuteronomy was originally rooted, and has in fact been already abandoned in the book as we now have it. That is because its content now appears in the form of homiletic instruction of the laity." End quote. Of course, that's an association with his theory of Levitic preaching as being the origin of the book of Deuteronomy. It has been cast into the form of Moses' preaching, but the structural pattern, he feels, originally was rooted in the cult and derived from the cult. 
so that he hasn't really abandoned at all the basic approach to Deuteronomy, which he held originally in 1938, as far as the structure of the book and its origin are concerned. He recognizes, however, that the treaty pattern is so close to the structure of the book of Deuteronomy that there must be some connection. Although he's not willing to abandon his earlier theories or draw any conclusions, that would drive back to the Mosaic era for the origin of the form. Now, I would say, and others have said it, I'm not saying anything new in this regard. In fact, I'll appeal to an article by J. Thompson. There's good reason to conclude that a cultic origin hypothesis does not provide an adequate or complete explanation for the nature of the question of the form of Deuteronomy. Some sort of cultic origin hypothesis does not give an adequate or complete explanation for the origin of this form. In addition, it does not answer the fundamental question of the reason for and the time of the initial adoption of this form in ancient Israel. I think that is the key issue. Why did Israel adopt this form, and when did she adopt it? When did it enter into use in Israel? Well, von Rad is not too certain about that. He'll go back as far as judges to say there must have been some acquaintance with the form, but that's all he says. Here's a student question. Does von Rad go back to the time of judges because this was the form that was prevalent early in the judges' period? Lenoy's answer. Yes, I would think so, and I think in the biblical material, if you take the material as it represents itself to be, say Joshua chapter 24 or the book of Deuteronomy or Exodus chapter 19, you do get back earlier than the time of the judges. What Funrad would say is the material in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua was really codified later. It was written after the time that the Bible represents it to be written. Therefore, Israel became acquainted with the form and material was put in that form at a later time but not in the original material. J. A. Thompson, who was the author of that commentary that we will read the introduction to, wrote an article on the cultic credo and the Sinai tradition. And this is in the Reform Theological Review, volume 27, 1968, pages 52 to 64. Now, that's a very interesting article. I'm not sure if the Reformed Theological Review is in our library or not. You might find it very interesting to read the article. In discussing Funrad's view, Thompson says, and I quote from him, quote, There seems little reason to doubt that the historical prologue in the secular treaties was a basic aspect of any treaty. End quote. The historical prologue in the treaty structure is an essential element. Now, we're going to look into that, and there's even been debate about that. Thompson says it's an essential element. He goes on. There is little reason to doubt the historical prologue in the secular treaty was the basic aspect of any treaty, nor need we doubt that it represented, albeit perhaps in some enhanced form, a correct outline of the preceding historical events which were paraded as a strong argument for the acceptance of the treaty by the vassal. In other words, the historical material in that prologue is very important. It appears in all the treaty. It's an essential element of the treaties. 
Secondly, it represents real history in the sense that the events that are retold in that prologue provide the basis for the relationship that is going to be established between the suzerain and his vassal. So it represented a correct outline of the preceding historical events that became a strong argument for acceptance of the treaty by the vassal. The great king says, I've done this, I've done that, and I've done the other thing. That's a good reason for the vassal to accept the obligations that are going to be imposed upon him. He's benefited in the past from the king's benevolence. Thompson goes on to say, quote, Von Rad does, of course, take note of the historical recital of the Sinai event when he discusses Deuteronomy and Exodus chapters 19 to 24. But for him, this historical narration is merely a cultic legend of very doubtful historicity. End quote. There you see there's an enormous difference. That historical summation for von Rad is a, quote, cultic legend of doubtful historicity, end quote. It's just some story that's really the creation of Israel's faith, if you remember Old Testament history, from last year. It has nothing to do with events that actually happened. It's a cultic, liturgical recital that is the expression of Israel's faith. We go on with Thompson. Quote, so that historical prologue is of doubtful historicity, but the question should be asked whether a cultic legend could serve the purpose demanded in this context. It ought not to be assumed that a cultic liturgy should be divorced from the underlying historical events. End quote. In other words, when you go back to the treaty material, the great king says, I've done this and that and thus for you, and you should appreciate this. That is what should evoke a response of loyalty on the part of a vassal. In other words, when it comes to the vassal, the vassal owns obeisance to the suzerain because of something that has happened historically, not something that was just thought up in a liturgical context. So when you come to biblical material, if you're going to say that the historical prologue is not really history, and that the previous relationship between the partners, in fact, didn't exist, that it's just legendary, what then is the real basis for the response on the part of the vassal? So I think a cultic derivation view is deficient. The relationship between Yahweh and his people, in which establishment or renewal is narrated in connection with the apparent covenant form in the Old Testament, this is connected in a very real sense with the antecedent and historical relationship of the covenant partner. Notice what the Lord says. I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt. Therefore, he gives the Ten Commandments. The reality of that preceding historical relationship is integrally connected with the establishment of the covenant. So that while such a relationship may be renewed or celebrated in the cult, and Israel did do that, I think that it presupposes a specific historical occasion on which it was originally and formally established. That very relationship, which, of course, then would point you to Sinai, is the one that is the occasion for, example, the giving of the Ten Commandments and other material in the covenant. On what occasion would that have taken place in Israel history, if not at Sinai. It would be our contention that the Sinai event, described in Exodus chapters 19 to 24, provide the most likely setting for the entrance of the covenant form 
and points to the experience of ancient Israel in which the historical prologue is functioning as it does in the treaties. It speaks of real historical events. It provides the antecedent for the relationship that is to be established. So there's enormous significance to be attached to the coming to Sinai and entering into a covenant there and to the preceding history that went before that is the Lord deliverance from Egypt for his people. So to come back to the question, what Zitzim Laban of the Old Testament covenant form provides the historical foundation of its presence, the nature of the form and its origin, is it cultic or is it historical? I think that on the analogy of the treaty form, you have to conclude that you have strong evidence pointing towards a historical origin for the covenant form, particularly as it's connected with the nature of the historical prologue. The historical prologue is that which recites real history, not some sort of legendary materials that then would not provide an adequate basis for the relationship that is put into this particular form. In other words, history is necessary for the form as we have it. Student question. Did the first entrance of the covenant treaty relationship form come at Sinai when the Lord gave Moses the law? Is that when it first entered Israel's history? Benoi, yes, because what you have there is the Lord himself, by his own choice, establishing a relationship with his people that seems to follow this legal form which was known at the time. It was patterned, in a certain sense, in a similar way. Now, I don't think we could argue for any direct derivation, but I do think that it's more the matter that God chose to structure the relationship with his people in a pattern from the political realm that was familiar with the people at that time. You then have the Lord coming to his people and saying, in effect, I am the Lord your God. He identifies himself as the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So he says, this is what I've done for you. Now, therefore, you have obligations to me, and depending on your obedience or disobedience, the blessings and curses are attached. There was a ceremony for ratification of that. You find all this in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. Now, you don't find any detailed sort of correspondence that you could sit down and say someone was copying the covenant form from a Hittite treaty that he may have had before him. I don't think it is that kind of a connection, but it is a relationship that is structured generally on the same elements involved in Hittite treaties. Well, let's move on to number two on your sheet, which is the evolution of the treaty form and its implications for the date of Deuteronomy. I've mentioned this earlier. Klein argues in his book, The Treaty of the Great King, page 28, that Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document that, in its total structure, exhibits the classic legal form of suzerainty treaties of the Mosaic Age, namely, from the Hittites. Now, why the emphasis on the classic legal form? Because Klein's case is made in part by noting what he calls, quote, a discernible evolution in the documentary form of the suzerainty treaty, end quote. His point is that, with that movement in form and evolution in form, the book of Deuteronomy corresponds with the classic form of the Hittite treaty that starts being used in the Mosaic era. In other words, that classic pattern progressed through time with modification away from the original pattern. 
Deuteronomy doesn't correspond with the later treaty form, namely the Assyrian treaties or treaties from Sephire. Deuteronomy fits the classic form of the Hittite era. So with this discernible evolution, he says, quote, Deuteronomy agrees with the classic stage in the evolution of treaty forms, end quote, which then places it in the Mosaic time frame or the Hittite time frame, not the later Assyrian time frame. Now, that raises another point of the present discussion, and there's a lot of discussion about this. Do the Hittite treaties of the 14th and 13th centuries exhibit a classic form that does not survive in treaties of a later time? As, for example, does the form match the 8th century Aramaic treaties from Sephira in North Syria, or the 7th century treaties of Esarhaddon of Assyria? That becomes a matter of importance in Klein's argument, and therefore something I think we need to look at. If you have later treaties, and if the later treaties, being the Assyrian treaties of the 7th century, are identical in form to the Hittite treaties, well, why wasn't Deuteronomy built off the Assyrian treaties, then, of the 7th century, confirming the 621 B.C. date that Wellhausen was arguing for? So the timing of the treaties becomes a significant matter in discussing the time of Deuteronomy. Well, small a of the outline, the vassal treaties of Esarhaddon and Sephire compared with the Hittite suzerainty treaty and implications for the date of Deuteronomy. If you look at the vassal treaties of the Esarhaddon period, I think you will find that there are certain elements that are much the same as the earlier Hittite treaties. But in spite of some similarities that you would expect in any treaty, there are very important differences that we have to look at. The most important differences, I think, are enumerated here under the outline little a, little b, and little c. The first is the absence of a historical prologue. I'd say the most striking and important contrast between the Assyrian and Hittite treaties is that the second section of the schema of the Hittite treaty is the historical prologue, and that is not found in the Assyrian treaties. I think that is enormously important for several reasons. First of all, the historical prologue sets the tone for the Hittite treaty. It's on the basis of his prior beneficent acts that the great king justifies the demand for observance of the stipulations on the part of the vassal. That's the way the treaty flows. The suzerain says, I've done this for you, and justifies then the obligation that the vassal has to the great king. That historical prologue follows immediately after the preamble in every presently available Hittite treaty. In other words, it's not something that's a random thing, that is in some treaties, but not in others. It's something that is present in all the presently available Hittite treaties. Now, maybe someone will dig up a treaty sometime down the line that won't have it in there. I ought to add a note to that point. I say it's available in all the treaties that we have at this point. I could refer you to several German works that discuss it, but that probably won't help you much. But Dennis J. McCarthy, in his book Treaty and Covenant, it's listed in your bibliography, in several places in his book, he contests that assertion that it's in all of the presently available Hittite treaties and argues that several of the Hittite treaties do not have a historical prologue and, consequently, the historical prologue was not an essential element of the Hittite treaty form. 
I don't want to go into all the details of that. I think that McCarthy is mistaken. It turns on texts that have things left out, and it turns on interpretation of certain texts. It becomes a very complicated question, but if you're interested in pursuing it, look at Herbert Huffman, who objects to that statement of McCarthy. Huffman supports the analysis that I gave that all the Hittite treaties do have a historical prologue. Now, if we had more time, we could perhaps look into that question a little further. The historical prologue sets the tone of the treaties. It's in all the treaties that we presently have and are acquainted with, and it introduces in the structure the loyalty obligation of the vassal to the great king. That's the next element. It introduces the pronunciation of the loyalty obligation of the vassal to the great king. So that the absence of a historical prologue in the Esarhaddon treaties contributes to the cold, harsh tone that you find in Esarhaddon treaties in general. The wording of those treaties is typical of the ruthless Assyrian imposition of its power on surrounding nations. There is no hint of any merciful Assyrian actions on behalf of the vassal that would merit loyalty and thanksgiving or anything like that. There's that blunt declaration of their obligation that is secured by threats and curses if they are not followed. That's quite a different spirit. The Assyrian treaties are fewer in number than the Hittite treaties. I mean, we aren't dealing with an enormous body of literature here. I think they ought to be kept in mind in arguments of this sort. Further discoveries may throw quite a different light and angles on a lot of the questions that we have at present. So you want to keep that in mind in any of the theory that you've adopted. Archaeological evidence is fragmentary at best. Drawing conclusions from fragmentary evidence has certain evident problems. There certainly is resistance to the use of the Hittite material for the mosaic time of the origin of Deuteronomy. So I'd say in conclusion that the historical prologue is not only an important difference in form, but it also indicates from the outset a vast difference in spirit between the Hittite and Assyrian treaties. So you get a difference in form and a difference in spirit connected with that form. So there's quite a different quality of relationship, you might say, between the suzerain and the vassal in the Hittite treaty compared to that relationship as brought out in the Assyrian treaties. Second point, there is an absence of a basic obligation, that loyalty obligation that immediately follows the historical prologue. Of course, the Assyrian treaties, not having a historical prologue, it doesn't issue into that, but that also is an extremely significant element in the Hittite treaties, because that more than anything expresses the spirit of the relationship between the treaty partners. Because of the gracious acts performed in the past by the great king, the vassal expresses his thanks by declaring his oath of allegiance and loyalty. In lieu of that element in the Hittite treaties, the Assyrian treaties contain an oath of allegiance that is in quite a different place in the structure of the treaty. It's after the first section of curses. An oath of allegiance is taken so that the context becomes one of fear rather than of trust and loyalty. The quality of the relationship, as I said before, is substantially different. Third, 
Absence of blessings also is in keeping with the tone of the Assyrian treaty and is another structural difference between the Assyrian and the Hittite treaties. No blessings are enumerated, whatever, for keeping the treaty stipulations. In the Hittite treaties, that is a prominent element. In the Assyrian treaties, there are no blessings. The conclusion, then, I think, on the basis of these observations, and we could do this in a more detailed way, but I think these are the important things. It seems to me that Klein does have an adequate foundation for the assertion that the Assyrian treaties are essentially different from those of the earlier Hittite period. Now, Klein's not alone in his position. This is not something that is uniquely Klein's idea, nor is it confined to evangelical authors who discuss these matters. Mendenhall himself agrees. Albright agrees. John Bright in his History of Israel agrees that there is a difference between the Assyrian treaties and the Hittite treaties. Mendenhall in his original article, Law and Covenant in Israel and the Ancient Near East, in 1954 said, and I'm quoting him, this covenant type is even more important as a starting point for the study of Israelite tradition because of the fact that it cannot be proven to have survived the downfall of the great empires of the late 2nd millennium B.C. When empires rose again, notably Assyria, the structure of the covenant by which they bound vassals is entirely different. End quote. That's Mendenhall. Assyrian treaties are different, and he notes further, and I'm quoting him here, in all the materials we have this historical prologue, and is missing, and only the Assyrian deities are listed as witnesses. The entire pattern seems so erratically different. End quote. So for Albright in his book Stone Age to Christianity, and he agrees with Mendenhall, and he says, quote, The structure of a half dozen Assyrian and Aramean nation treaties, which we know from the eighth century BC and later, is quite different. End quote. John Bright says the same thing in his History of Israel. So that on that point, Klein has good support. Those men don't all draw the same conclusions that Klein does, but they recognize the difference in the treaty forms. So even though certain elements are similar as to be expected in treaties between a greater and a lesser power, the similarities are not sufficient to warrant the statement of D.J. Weissman, who says, quote, that the form of the treaties was already standardized by the Hittite Empire, and that the vassal treaties of Esarhaddon show that it has remained basically unchanged through the Neo-Assyrian times. End quote. So you get a division of opinion, but it seems the weight of evidence is with Klein, Mendenhall, Albright, and Bright, and there's this difference. There is a discernible evolution. There is quite a different structure, quite a different kind of relationship between the two groups of treaties, that is, between the early Hittite treaties in the Mosaic period and the later Assyrian treaties much later. Okay, let's go on to number two of the outline, the Sefiri treaties. And Sefiri is S-E-F-I-R-E. -E. It looks like it should be pronounced Sefire, but it's Sefiri. We've talked about the difference between the Assyrian treaties and the Hittite treaties, but now let's turn to the Sefiri treaties. These treaties are about a century earlier than the Assyrian ones from the 8th century BC. They are closer in time to the Assyrian treaties than to the Hittite treaties, so they are sort of in between. 
Sofiri is from the 8th century, and the Assyrians from the 7th century. Small a in the outline, similarities to the Esarhaddon Treaty or the Assyrian Treaty. What we're going to notice next will be Sofiri's similarities to the Hittite treaties. They have certain similarities to both sets of treaties, that is, to the Hittite and to the Assyrian treaties. Similarities, first of all, to the Assyrian treaties. With the presently available Aramaic treaties from Sefiri, again, this is in North Syria, one finds no historical prologue. Some of the treaties are fragmented with what is currently extant, but there is no historical prologue in what is extant. There is not any statement of that basic obligation, either. So in those respects, you could say that the treaties from Sefiri really are closer to the Esarhaddon treaties than they are to the Hittite treaties. Sefiri was a small city-state in Syria with relationships to other lesser powers. It was not a major empire. It gives the names of the kings of that city. In addition, it might be said that the stipulations are decidedly one-sided. They regulate the conduct of the vassals towards the more powerful partner, but there's no reciprocation. There's very little of obligation of the greater power towards the vassal. In the Hittite treaties, just by way of contrast on this point, there is a solidarity of the two treaty partners, so that the head partner promises protection for the vassal. That's a strong element in the Hittite treaties. The head partner promises protection to the vassal. He promises that the enemies of the vassal will be defeated when the vassal remains loyal to his suzerain. Of course, the parallel there is with the mosaic material, and it's very interesting, too. But both the treaties of Sefiri and the Assyrian treaties lack any such protection clause to the vassals. There is no protection clause in either of the two treaties. There are some other points, but we'll leave that and turn to the similarities of the Sefiri treaties with the Assyrian treaties. Similarities of the Sefiri treaties to the Hittite treaties for certain features of the Aramaic treaty seem closer to the Hittite treaty. In the selection of gods called upon as witnesses to the treaty, the Aramaic treaties cite that gods of both places of the suzerain and the vassal, and they are witnesses to the covenant. But other than that, as I've said before, the Sefiri treaties are much closer to the Assyrian treaties than to the Hittite treaties. This is the end of lecture number six by Robert Vinoy on the book of Deuteronomy.